At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. All right, plenty of rational thoughts coming on today on our show. Man, we've got a really amazing guest. Um, she edits and ghostwrites books and gets authors book deals with New York literary agents and publishers. And her clients have been featured on Hallmark TV, Daily Mail TV, Oprah Magazine, Time Magazine, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today bestseller list. She's even had her clients in airport bookstores, FedEx office, Office Max, and more. Uh, she herself was an author. She wrote the book... Um, from uh, it's called the power of miracle thinking which was featured in the movie eat pray love and she's got to write a book program her website is called author one stop i'll be going there when this interview is over so welcome to our uh, show today um author and book shepherd randy pfizer randy how are you thank pfizer. you very much pfizer, how are you got it right i'm very good yeah it's pfizer I say pfizer i'm thinking of the vaccine or something sorry pfizer yeah. Well, you know what's Pfizer. funny? In the first book, the first book I wrote was called Crappy Too Happy. That was actually the book that was in the movie Eat, Pray, Love. Yes. And um, Julia Roberts is holding it up in a bookstore scene. Yeah. And in the book, Crappy to Happy, I have 69 misspellings of my name. <laughs> so. You know, it's very it's very funny. My very first book I published uh, that got me sort of started. I was very proud of it. I'm like, okay. And now that I've been doing this for 13 years. I'm like, Oh my God, same thing. There's at least a dozen, <laughs> two dozen typos in there. And I haven't taken the time to go back and clean up. I'll get to it later. I'm too busy yes. working my client's book. Sound familiar? Oh, it, it sure does. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, before we get into the, uh, the essence of what you're going to share today, tell us or tell the audience what they're going to get out today. What, what takeaways can we prime them for to help them stick around for the next 20, 30 minutes? So one of the things that I consistently hear, because I've done over 400 talks on, you know, how to get a book deal with a publisher and keynotes and things like that, all about how to get a book deal with a publisher. And there are so many things that people don't know. And the, the, the feedback I get consistently is that I don't deliver any fluff. I am here to share information that you need to know that most people do not know. So for example, what do publishers and agents really want to see? What do they buy? What do they look for? How, what do your numbers need to be? Because publishing, I tell people there's two parts to getting a book deal. One part is about your content, your differentiation, the writing itself. You know, What are you bringing that's new to the conversation? The other part has to do with your numbers. And this is the business side of publishing. And most people, are clueless. They just, you just, it's, it's not your world. It's my world. I'm in the book world. So I'm happy to share, like, what are the numbers that publishers really want to see in order to give you a book deal? We are all over that today because um, at my company, we just focus on self-publishing. I've got like two clients and friends that have done the regular book route. Most of us have gone, okay, here's my manuscript. Thank you, Amazon. And we're, you know, off the races. So First of all, before I get into the, the, the no fluff, give me the meat on the publishing world. Yes. Um, tell me how you got involved in the business in the first place. What's your background? It's, it's an incredibly funny story. I, I tell people I slept my way into the publishing industry. And I, I'd been working in nonprofits in the 70s and 80s. And then the early 90s, I fell in love with a magazine publisher. And it was the largest mind, body, spirit magazine for the entire San Francisco Bay Area when the new age was hot and happening. And you could say the word new age and people weren't ruling, rolling their eyes at that point. Well, I think it's making a comeback. I don't know. I don't think it's a problem. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of people still roll their eyes around it. Now it's mind, body, spirit. And that's the cool thing. And by the way, I do sell a lot of mind, body, spirit books. But anyway, um, at the time, although the relationship capsized, I continued with my writing career. I continued to run that magazine. Then I started writing my own books and then I started looking for publishers and I was going to New York to the big feeding frenzy for the entire publishing industry in the United States. And so I actually wound up going there 20 years in a row. And, you know, first I was pitching my books. I found a publisher for my book. Then it was very organic. I just started helping other people and it just grew and grew and grew and grew. And to the point now where, you know, I just have this amazing, amazing company where we just, but I tell people I have a very narrow lane in the publishing world that I primarily help first-time authors and professionals or first-time authors who are professionals to get, you know, book deals with traditional publishers. And my lane is, I say, 
get the content right, get the book sold to a publisher. That, that's it. That's, that's my lane, whether we're book coaching, editing, ghostwriting. And then I pitch. Oh, a lot of people don't know the, the nuances of this whole industry. And even my knowledge is, is very um, superficial when it comes to this because I, don't, I haven't, I haven't inter interfaced with publishers before. But I know that the industry did shift a little bit when self-publishing became very popular and easy to do. And I tell my clients, some of the best things in the world that have happened are also the worst things in the world, which is self-publishing. Because now anybody can publish. That's great. And it's also horrible because anybody can publish. So, and I know that the publishing industry, publishing traditional Newark houses have shrunk quite a bit in the past 20, 25 years. So how many are left? What are they looking for? And what are there, are there some simple steps people can do to? Sure, sure. I, I want to back up the conversation just a little bit. And I, I want to say that I love self-publishing and I like traditional publishing for different reasons. So I just yeah, want right. to point out some very quick generalizations because I don't care whether people want to self-publish or find a traditional publisher. I'm not attached to which way they want to go. I just want what's really highest and best for each person, depending on their goals. So what I tell people, gen these are general terms now. If you want to get a book out quickly, self-publish. Typically, if you want to make more money per book, self-publish. However, if you're using your book for your career, definitely try for a traditional publisher. Why? Well, one, your book's going to be in Barnes and Nobles and other bookstores all around the country. And my authors who have been like in Time Magazine, these are first-time authors, in Time Magazine and Oprah Magazine and Cosmo Magazine, Publishers Weekly Top Picks and Airport Bookstores, all those kinds of opportunities and many other speaking engagements to represent yourself as the professional you are, typically those will open up primarily when your book has come out through a traditional publisher. Well, why? Because the book is vetted and you know it's, it, it's already declared stellar. So for example, if you're self-publishing, that's one thing. If your book's coming out with Simon & Schuster and McGraw-Hill, that's quite another. And so it just lends greater credibility. So you were talking about like, where, where is traditional, where is the industry now and what's happening with it? So I pitch to both literary agents and publishers, depending on the project. I usually take nonfiction directly to publishers and fiction directly to the agents because they have more connections in the fiction world than I do. But I'm very, very connected with the publishers. And so I'm not, attached to whether it's a small publisher or a large publisher. I just want the right alignment for you and your book. And it is true that larger publishers are gobbling up smaller publishers. I'm always paying attention to that, but there are still a gazillion opportunities to get books published. There just are. And I usually start just with a 15 minute conversation with someone just to hear, you know, what is your book? What are your goals for it? And then I'll just, you know, spit out, here's my plan. This is exactly what I would do. The process is the steps to get your book to where it needs to go. And then within a 15 minute chat, I have this like, you know, Rolodex or ticker tape mind. And I'm going, oh, okay, no, where do I want to send it? Oh, this agent would love this project. Oh yeah, yeah, it needs to go to this publisher. You know, so I already know, I, I know the playing field. You know, when, when you have real relationships, this is a world built on real relationships. And, you know, I have a, a very dear friend who says, you know, Randy, you have hug, hug, kiss, kiss relationships. And it's really true. You know, so I have agents who have said to me, Randy, I hope you know I fast track every project you send. You know, well, why? Well, because I've sent them projects that have gotten six figure deals. You know, so the credibility is there. The 20 years of connections and meeting in New York and the hug, hug, kiss, kiss relationships are in place. I have another top agent who said, Randy, you know, I'm getting a thousand submissions a month. I'm not even opening my emails. When you have something for me, text me. These are real relationships that yield results. So I typically can open doors quickly for people that they'll just never be able to open for themselves. Got about uh, 20, 30 referrals for you right off the bat because all <laughs> my clients are like asking, like, I don't know anybody. Now I do. Um, right. So right. tell me about the, the details of what a publisher does nowadays because I know they used to do big book launches and signings, and somebody told me they're not doing as much marketing. They do distribution. So tell me what they're doing and how it works. 
It's very interesting because in, in the traditional publishing world right now, some of the major players like you know Penguin Random House and, and, and other players as well, they're actually, um, other publishers are subcontracting with them to handle distribution. So, you know, I've, I've seen, you know, Penguin Random House is handling um, Redwell Riser distribution and, you know, just who's a, mind, a top mind body spirit publisher. I'm, I'm just kind of noticing like, you know, there's a, there's a lot of playing togetherness that so, you know, I, I see, just see there's a lot of that going on. What do publishers do? You know, if you if you're thinking, why do I want one? What do they actually do? Well, they're printing your book. That's one thing. And they have sales teams. They do have sales teams who will contact the Barnes and Noble book buyers to get pre-sales going. You know, for, and also, you know, they're going to get reviews out. So, for example, one of my authors wrote a book called Words Whispered in Water. And she's a whistleblower. And she was whistleblowing on the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers related to Hurricane Katrina. And, you know, um, we edited that book, analyzed it, edited it. I sold that book within two weeks, two weeks of it being edited to a publisher. And the next thing you know, Publishers Weekly is calling it one of their top 25 picks. It has won seven awards. You know, it's just really, really powerful. And so, you know, how did it get to Publishers Weekly to get the, that kind of accolade and that kind of traction and attention? That was through a publisher. Like I have a book that's not a book. I have an Oracle deck that's coming out in June of 2022. We wanted it to come out in, the publisher wanted it to come out in April in, because it's written by two women from an indigenous tribe in, in Canada that's never been represented in print, this gorgeous Oracle deck. So they wanted it to come out strategically around Earth Day. It seemed like you know, a perfect fit with an indigenous tribe. However, Due to supply chain issues and paper shortages. And also, I learned that in China, China is now charging $50,000 for a print job. And so, most publishers are not going for a $50,000 print job. So, all of a sudden, for color. So, where they used to go to China, you know, to, for a lot of their printing, they can't do that anymore. So, they started scrambling, you know, are they going to Singapore, they Vietnam, wherever. You know, it's other places. So because of the supply chain issue, the Oracle deck on sacred women's wisdom, feminine wisdom, it's going to be coming out in, uh, they're aiming, fingers crossed, because of supply chain issues around paper, for June of 2022. So. So the, I, I asked some, um, uh, This these are the, the, the 2020 or 60 minute questions coming up here. Okay, so um, yes. I'm going to, if I'm fortunate enough to work with you and get a publishing deal, um, they put it in Barnes and Noble. Who goes to bookstores anymore? Aren't most books sold online, or is that not true? Well, the publishers, in, in, a publishing contract contains a lot of subsidiary rights. It's gonna, it's gonna contain electronic rights. It's going to contain um, audiobook rights. And so, you know, article rights, North American or article rights. There's a, a lot of rights that are negotiated in that. So yes, you know, book sales do happen online and, and, and obviously, you know, in very large amounts and, but the publishers are configured in that as well. Somebody told me once go, that, oh, go ahead, if a book doesn't sell uh, after yeah. a period of time, it gets sent back to the publishers. I mean, there's, there's turn on the bookshelf, yes. right? There's, there's, there's returns, which is why royalties are typically paid like every six months. Yeah, not so much every quarter because they have to allot for that of uh, the potential for returns. So, and then let's get right to the heart of it now. What are publishers looking for besides, uh, you know, some good quality? What about the the right. my database, my database of people that that I could email to, or what? What are they looking for in terms of social um, outreach? Okay, I, well, there's two, again two parts to this question. One yeah. part is what are they looking for in terms of of topic Everything, and content. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, I'm going to share some of my secret sauce with you and with your listeners. So, and this is what I've heard from McGraw-Hill. I've heard it from other publishers as well. They are looking for, and people might want to write this down, outcome-driven titles and outcome-driven content. Now, the McGraw-Hill acquisitions editor, she was offering a $17,500 advance, a very nice, nice advance, on a, a project that we ultimately got 125,000 for with Simon and Schuster. But for this particular project, she said, you know, I, this is what I want. I'm looking for outcome-driven titles, outcome-driven content. And then she defined it. 
She described it, she said, I am looking for books that'll take the reader from point A to point B with all the steps in between. So by the time the reader finishes reading the book, they can actually apply something and do something differently. So one of the problems that I see that people do when they're titling a book, they're not really putting an outcome in it and they're not using the language that's going on in the reader's self-talk. So for example, you might see a lot of books that say, you know, some version of, you know, find your authentic self. But the problem is readers are not walking around when they're thinking about the issues in their lives going, God, I, I wish I had my authentic self. Like what is the actual self-talk that they are saying to themselves? that you can help them, that you have a solution for. Position that in your title. We do we do surveys all the time, so you gotta use the, the language of your, your prospects, your audience, whatnot. If you're using your own language, you're gonna, 50% chance you're gonna miss it. That's, that's really good uh, intel. So yes, outcome-based, give, give me an example of a recent one that was uh, maybe where you met, you changed the title, made it outcome-based for the publisher. Give okay, me. sure. Um, there was, there one book that um, it's called Take Back Your Life. And one of the, it has like a three part subtitle, but the part that drew people was called, you know, Take Back Your Life, how to, you know, have the right nutrition. I forgot the exact words, but the part that absolutely sticks out in my mind and sticks out in every woman's mind for that book is and how to look good naked. <laughs> There's an outcome for you. It's just like yeah, how many I, women guys want that? that too. Yeah, <laughs> so, everybody likes that, sure. <laughs> so that book did gangbusters oh my god mm -hmm. the author uh she wound up on stages with verizon and google it, 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 at a conference in malaysia this was you know a little bit pre-covid but it was just so funny that you know it was a very strong outcome and i just we just helped her just finished editing her a, a new book that she's written you know um i had a, a the first book i ever sold it was about 20 years ago it was called nice girls do get the sale and i remember thinking like I sold it under the author's brand name, which was Smooth Sales, sales being S-A-L-E-S, -E sales. But this is where I learned that publishers do not care about an author's brand at all. Does not matter to them. We love our brands. We're attached to our identity and our brands. Publishers don't care about that. The only thing they care about is selling books. That's it. And so they changed the title from Smooth Sales to nice girls do get the sale. And I remember when the book came out thinking, we're power women. We don't want to be referred to as girls. But at the same time, the power of nice had come out and it was really, really big. So the publishers were playing off of that with the word nice. And because of that, the author, my first author, Eleanor Stutz, wound up in a Time Magazine article that was talking about nice. And her career skyrocketed. Now, this is a first-time author, wasn't known really much of anywhere. And the next thing you know, she's on stage with Susie Orman, as, who was the keynoter, at a conference at the Moscone Center in San Francisco. Her career skyrocketed with that book. Now, that book came out, I, I don't know if it was like maybe 20 years ago. The publisher is still publishing it. It's in multiple languages. They just contacted her recently. They want to refresh you know, They want to freshen up the material. And then about, I don't know, what was it, like maybe eight years later after that first book came out, I got an email from Eleanor Stutz, the author, and she had she had written um, an ebook. She just, just put it out, so I was just on her email list. And it was a book called Hired, and it was how to become the candidate of choice on any job interview by using uh, sales closing techniques. And I looked at that, that email and I called her and I said, Eleanor, I can sell this book. You know, and she was like, got all excited about it. And I said, you know, write me a proposal because she understood how to do that because we had worked on her first project together. And so a business proposal, a book proposal is necessary for every nonfiction project. It's absolutely mandatory. There's, there's no exceptions on that. So Eleanor wrote this book proposal, this business, big business plan, sent it to me. And I called her and I said, Eleanor, I apologize, but this proposal isn't going to sell the book. Will you please allow me to rewrite it? And because we had that history, she did. Well, I rewrote it. She looked at my proposal and went, oh my God, now I get it. Well, I pitched it. I pitched that proposal and her manuscript to an agent. In one day, he signed her 
one day, sold the book to a publisher in one week, and then the publisher's bulk sales team sold it to FedEx office who bought 3000 copies of it for their stores. Now, how many books does FedEx office really carry? A handful. And at the same time, I had two of my authors, two of them. That book hired and 30 days to social media success in all FedEx office stores around the country. That That is um, amazing and congratulations. Good job. Yeah, thank Randy. you, thank wow. you, thank you. That's impressive. So the yeah, people understand the book proposal. It's like they're usually like it's like a mini book, right? The proposal is a pretty big document. Yes. On presenting to agents and publishers, right? Yes. Yeah. You know, I, I'd like to before we even go into book proposals because I'm happy to speak about them. Yeah. I want to address the second part of your your last question, which is about where does a, where does an author's numbers need to be? What are yeah. the numbers and where do they need to be? Right. Sure. So, I was sitting with Angelina Jolie's literary agent. I was in New York at the Jacob Javits Center, Conference Center. This was during the Book Expo before everything got shut down because of COVID. And I was pitching a project to him. We're sitting at a Starbucks table and I'm just verbally pitching to him. And I see him looking down and he's pulling his phone out of his pocket. And the first thing I thought was, God, that's rude. So I was busy judging him in my mind, but it turned out he was looking at my author. He was looking at my author on YouTube and pulled out his phone, looked at his numbers and he said, no, uh, his numbers are too small. Click, done. I was on a call, a Zoom call with an acquisitions editor. I was pitching nine projects and as I verbally pitched them, she was looking at my people wherever their main demographic was. was were they on Facebook or were they professionals on LinkedIn? And she would look at them and say, oh, the, their numbers are strong but the amount of engagement they have with the author is, is way too low. Click, done. So where do your numbers need, what are the numbers and where do they need to be? Where are your people? Here's the question. Where are your people on social media? Where, where is your audience? Are they on TikTok, on Instagram, on LinkedIn, on Facebook? Where are they? What is your main demographic? One of the sections of a book proposal is called about the market. We have to divide it into three buckets, your primary market. And your primary market is the person who, if they were to walk into a Barnes & Noble or any other bookstore, who is the exact person who would go to the exact shelf that your book sits on and buy your book versus the book right next to it. That is your target market person, your primary market. Then we have to identify your secondary market. Okay, you know, that's like, that's the first league. Now, who, who are the other players who might got, get it? And then there's the tertiary, which is the, like the bigger bucket of who's left. And so that's, these are very, very critical things to know and then to know where your people are, especially in your primary market, where are they online? Like if you're a professional, your book is business related, you'd better have a strong following on LinkedIn. So for example, how strong does your following have to be? I'll tell you, a couple of years ago, I had 25 meetings in New York, live meetings, this is just pre-COVID. I had 22 meetings with publishers and three with top literary agents. Now remember, these are all separate meetings. So all the feedback I'm getting is completely individual to the person I'm meeting with. 25 meetings in two and a half days, pitching 16 projects. Yes, I am that gal kind of like on steroids. <laughs> I love it. This is my playground. And I had an author, Chris Mansky. He had written the book, which I actually did sell. It came out this past year called The Prepared Investor. So a book like The Prepared Investor, his audience is on LinkedIn. So when I was pitching his project, I would tell the people, the agents or publishers, Chris has two LinkedIn profiles. He has 10,000 people on his business profile on LinkedIn, and he has 1,000 people on his personal profile on LinkedIn. Now those three top agents, two of them have done six-figure deals for my clients, but they're still three top agents. When I met with them, they all said the exact same words in separate meetings. And they said, delete the 1,000. Don't even mention it. Those numbers are too small. 1,000 people is 1,000 people, but from a publisher's perspective, it's too small. And here's the reason why. A mid-range publisher wants to sell 3,500 to 5,000 books in the first year. Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, they want to sell 10,000 books in the first year. So in a book proposal, one of the sections is called about promotions. We have to show your links 
to your social media and your numbers, and they will look you up. One of the strongest things that we can do, that you can do, is make yourself as visible as possible. Be on podcasts constantly. And, you know, so the more visible you are, the more credibility you have, and the more publishers going to be interested in you. So when you're doing your visibility, one of the pages I like to put in a book proposal that uh, it's not mandatory, but I'm always looking to tip the sale in my author's favors and, and, and favor. And I have a very, very high rate of getting people book deals, tremendously high rate. If I agreed to, to in, an, in, an, in a conversation, a number of conversations, it's discerned like, yeah, this book is strong. You've got the right numbers that I think you need minimally have 10,000 numbers in any category, that'll be helpful, 10,000. Another way to, like I tell people there's a, you know, a workaround, a potential workaround. And one of the potential workarounds is if you do a GoFundMe and you generate a very large list of people who are already you know, basically ordering your book, that can be very helpful. So the largest number you can create, that, you know, that's another thing that can tip the sale in your favor. And you know, I started to say one of the pages I like to include in a book proposal, it's not mandatory, but I, I, this again, I'm tipping the sale in your favor. I like to include a full page, single spaced called, you know, just bulleted, single spaced, full page called sample appearances in which you're just listing, not dates, but just you know, the name of the podcast, name of the host things like that, or webinars you're leading, and anything you're doing with the media, put it in there. Because though, again, you know, publishers want people who are visible. And if we can prove your visibility, that's great. And so I had an agent many years ago tell me, and this is many years ago, and he said, once publishers love the content, they're sitting down with their calculators and they're comparing one person's numbers to another. So people say like, well, where do my numbers need to be? Well, they need to be higher than someone else's numbers. So for example, other ways to build numbers are, if possible, do a TED talk. I had a book, The Tao of Influence, that I sold to a publisher in two weeks after we had edited it. Well, well, why? The author did a TED talk and had a million views of it on YouTube. There's social proof. I had another author, uh, author, a book called The Chiron Effect. And that was a mind, body, spirit book, bringing in psychology and therapy and core wounds and astrology. And I sold it to a publisher because the author was doing her own podcast and she had 500,000 downloads of it and 30,000 people listening or signing on a week. Those are very, very high numbers. So do your numbers need to be crazy high? Well, not necessarily. You know, if there were 10,000 or 20,000 people, that's really good. That's good. And I always know. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Do they ever look at your, at your, um, your, your network? I mean, not obviously an event, if I'm speaking one more, but if I'm like, what if one of my clients is a Fortune 100 company, is that playing to it at all? Yes, because in the promotion section, your numbers do have to be strong. But the other thing that I do is that I wrote a letter, I have a templated letter that I sent all my clients that they can send out to their list and to all their power partners. And so we can create launch campaign partners, people who are willing to, you know, put a blurb out about your book that you write. You know, you tell them what day you want it to go out and they're willing to help. And then we're asking them for their numbers, their realistic numbers of who they're gonna reach. And so, in the promotion section, I make that easy for people because we're going to leverage the people you know, and they're going to be called launch campaign partners. And for each of those people, we're going to put their name and just the size of the list, name, list, name, list, name, list, whatever they're they're telling you back that they're willing to do for you in terms of yeah. numbers. So I templated all that. Yeah. Any of my yeah. clients who are listening to this podcast, you're beginning a call from Randy or myself on this topic because a lot of our their consultants they do great work. I, I love them all, and a lot of them work for the Fortune 500 as consultants, right? They might not right. be national, but they're like you've got connections with, you know, 
Procter and Gamble stuff. We need to leverage that stuff. So yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, and I, I love selling business books. I sell a lot of business books and it, it's typical that with a business book that there will be more than one offer on, on from different publishers. So for example, there was a book that came out in 2019 called Great Mondays by Josh Levine. And it's a book on company culture. There were four publishers offering book deals on that. So, you know, I sell a lot of business books. I sell a lot of mind, body, spirit, personal growth, self-help. Like right now, a lot of people are writing memoir. And the problem is a lot of people are writing memoir. And so publishers, it's, it's, it's very hard to sell memoir to a publisher. I actually did sell one this past year. It got a $30,000 advance. Right. Uh, but it, it's not the norm. And I also have a, another memoir that's, that was recently optioned for Hollywood film that I'm certainly keeping my fingers, fingers crossed on that oh, one. Yeah. But it's, it's really, really tough to sell memoir. And so yeah. you know, I'm just very yeah. honest. I'm honest with people, you know, just, in, yeah. you know. We avoid them um, as a matter of uh, uh, course. I've only made an exception for a guy who is, um, he does, he's done a few famous things. So I'm like, that can work. He um, right. he invented GPS. He right. founded a fortune. He founded a multi-billion-dollar company. He's got a, he's amazing guy. So right. Somebody I'll right. introduce you to because he might yes. might work. And yeah. and you know, I, I just want to address a memoir a little bit more and say that oh, everyone's please. life experiences typically people are writing memoir because they've overcome some horrific or very difficult challenge in their lives and they want to empower other people who are going through that experience. And that's very valid. I mean, your life, your unique presence, your point of view, your words matter. The impact you want to make matters. So for people who are working on memoir, if I really don't think it's positioned correctly for a traditional publisher, we'll still help with the content. You know, we'll, we'll analyze the manuscript. We'll point out in using the comments bar and word, anything that you can do to strengthen the manuscript. And then, you know, we'll edit it. You know, we'll, we just really help people with the content as well. So the content is right. Now, what can make a memoir more sellable to a traditional publisher is, and to readers as well, is what I call prescriptive memoir. And with prescriptive memoir, you're writing stories from your life followed by steps, stories, steps, stories, steps, because you always must answer the question in the reader's mind, which is what's in it for me? Why are they buying your book? And so the steps, and you might want to write this down. I tell people write either insights or action steps, insights or action steps. So here's a story of something that you went through, something you overcame that's in that chapter. And what are, let's say three or four, be consistent. If it's going to be three, it's going to be three with every single story or four, four steps for every single story. And they're either insights or action steps that are really gonna help the reader. And I wanna share with you, 20 years ago, or 22 years ago now, when my first book came out, it was called Crappy to Happy. When I originally sold Crappy to Happy to a wonderful traditional publisher, uh, they changed my title. So my original title was From Crappy to Happy, A Journey Out of the Pits and Into the Fruit of Life. And I thought, oh, that's witty. They're going to love that. Well, their marketing department changed it. They took off the preposition. They took off the from, and it became crappy to happy. But now listen to what they did to my subtitle, small steps to big happiness now. Why? Because it answered the question in the reader's mind. What's in it for me? And notice that that whole title is all outcome driven, crappy to happy, small steps to big happiness now. The outcome is right there. And so after each of my stories, I wrote four steps to big happiness now. Four steps to big happiness now. And you know, after every single one, after every single short story that I wrote, my second book, The Power of Miracle Thinking, here are three miracle thinking tips. After every single story that relate to that story, action steps or insights. And that that can make a book more sellable. One saying, I think, of Tony Robbins: never, never tell a story without making a point. Never make a point without telling a story. So, having both is 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 the way our brains are wired. I think, man, yes. I, Randy, we could we could talk for a long time, but I want to wrap up with the book proposal. I know it's like a it could probably be a whole topic. Maybe we'll do a second yes. a second interview on that. But 
can you give us uh, the, the listeners a summary on the importance of a book proposal? And I don't know if you want to outline the elements or the depth of it, because I know you, you you do those for clients, yes. right? So you can just tease them with yes. how important it is and how they can hire you. Okay, thank you. Well, the book proposal is actually the key to selling the book. It just absolutely is. And people will say, well, but I are, I've already written the manuscript. It's polished. It's ready to go. Yes, and. Yes, and. Every agent and every publisher expects to see a book proposal. Because there are many sections to a book proposal. We have to prove from section to section. We have to prove the sale of your book in every single section. And, you know, one of the things that I do to make it easy for people is that I have a book proposal that was pitched and sold very, very quickly to a publisher. And, you know, with my clients, it's something that I sell because, well, this is a, a proposal that's sold in one day. And so people use it as a model to create their own proposal because proposal writers, and you know, I'm a master of the proposal, but I see a lot of proposal writers charging ridiculous amounts of money, anywhere from like 7,000, 10,000, I've even seen 30,000. And, you know, I offer my people a $300 alternative. Here, use this proposal as your guide, as your model, and then we'll have a conversation about it afterwards. And, you know, afterwards I'll see, you know, like if I see a few things that the author can do, I'll just tell them, okay, just do this X, Y, and Z. And, you know, this proposal is looking great. Or if I see that this proposal is just not where it needs to be, we'll do a consultation and I'll just go page by page by page, including the cover, the cover of it, just right through the entire proposal. We're going to walk through it page by page so that the author can correct. And I only come in on the back end doing what's in my genius to do. So I'm able to do proposals really inexpensively for people. You know, when we do it this way, you know, I always tell people I will never waste anyone's time or their money. I just I just want to say that I'm not about that. I love to get people book deals, but your book has to be stellar. The proposal has to be stellar. It just has to. So let's talk about the different sections. So the main sections are there's an overview. What is this project about? One of the ways I encourage authors to start this overview, which should be about four double spaced pages, start it by saying the title of your book is the first book to fill in the blank because I want you to own a lane. What are you bringing new to a conversation anywhere where you own that lane? If you can say your book is the first book to and really mean it, that's great because that's, that's good positioning to start with an overview. Include bullet points, your takeaways for the reader. No fluff, no fluff, just be really, really solid. Uh, proposals are written in the third person, so you're not referring to me, my, you, I, we, us. No, you're referring to yourself after you've mentioned your name as, you know, your full name. After that, you're either going to say the author or your last name. So the entire proposal is going to be written in, in that third person. So be careful about that because that, that's an important point. Even if you're writing memoir, that's just the way it is. So there's the overview. After the overview, there's endorsements. And it's typical for our authors to write their own endorsements and ask famous people or people they know in their industry or other authors to sign off on them. Why? Because a lot of famous people, they're not gonna read your book. They don't even have time for it. And so an endorsement can be like two to three sentences, not longer than that. Don't do paragraph endorsements. But, you know, you can ask people you know, ask fellow authors who are also working on books. They can they can endorse your book as the author of the upcoming book and then their title, even if their book's not even out yet. So see what kind of endorsements you can get after endorsements. Let's go to about the author. And I want you to power pack your bio. And what this means is don't start with trivia right at the top. What? Can you say in your bio, and you're about the author page, and it should be a page, it shouldn't just go on and on forever, meander. But what can you say in that first line that's gonna get a publisher's eyebrows to raise? Like, whoa, you know, you're the credible expert. Put your most powerful information at the top and then work down from there. Publishers are not interested in your personal bio. They're not interested in your family members or your dog's name or even where you live. So just keep it entirely 
professional because that's all they really care about. So after about the author, I like to do sample appearances. As I mentioned, do a full page of sample appearances and automatically a publisher knows this is a person who's a go-getter who is go-getting. And that's what they wanna see because eyeballs sell books. So that's really, really important. After that, there's a section called about the competition. And I often ask, or yeah, I often ask um, people who are writing books to do this section before you do anything else. And years ago, it was really, really tough to do this section. I would take my author's project and I would be the one going to a Borders bookstore, or Barnes and Noble, going to the shelf that your book is on, finding other books in your category, looking at the, the dust jacket of that book, to say what their book is about and then talking about how your book differs. Well, now Amazon cut all of that out. It is so easy to do the competition section. So if you want to know if your book is the first book too, what better way to do that than to look up some of your competitive titles? And the way you do it is go on Amazon and type in keywords related to your book and find a book that is current, as current as possible. So that would be at this point, probably a 2021 title or a 2020 title. Don't go past 2019. So find something that's really current and that is not self-published. So you're gonna find something of a book from a very credible publisher, whether it's McGraw-Hill, Collins, Penguin Random House, Simon & Schuster, whatever. Just find a name that you recognize. It's like, oh yeah, I, you know, Wiley, whatever. I've heard of this publisher before. So. What you're gonna do is go halfway down the page on Amazon and read about that book. If it's comparable to yours in any way, I want you to copy and paste their text about their book. So you've just put their title of the book, the author's name, the publisher's name, and the year of publication. That's it at the top. Then copy and paste, that's their, their content, their editorial contact, content. And then you're gonna write how your book differs. So here's their content. And now you're gonna write maybe three or four sentences about how your book differs, how you're bringing something new to the conversation. So if you start with your competition section, you can see, does your book differ? And that's really, really critical. Now, this is how Amazon makes this so simple for us. Do you know when you go to the entire bottom of the Amazon page, what does it say there? It says, people who bought you know, that title also bought. And there's the algorithm that's clicked in and it's going to give you more leads for your competition section. So Amazon couldn't make this easier. What's very, very funny though, is that many years ago, a publisher approached me and they wanted to do a book of articles I had done with many New York Times bestselling authors. I worked in the magazine world prior to the book world. And so, you know, I had all these articles with Deepak Chopra, Wayne Dyer, Carolyn Mace, Marion Williams, and Neil Donald Walsh, and just all of the New York Times best-selling cream of the crop of mind, body, spirit authors, you know, James Redfield, I mean, just on and on. And so this publisher approached me and they wanted to do a book of these articles that were in a question and answer format. All these interviews I did for this particular um, very large mind, body, spirit magazine. And so they did a beautiful book cover. They put it up on Amazon, but you know, I didn't even have a contract from them. And, you know, I had my agent on it and she's like, you know, well, where's the contract? Well, it turns out they never published the book because the Barnes and Noble book buyers, when they went to do pre-sales for it, said that, that the readers, the buying public does not buy interview style books in a Q&A, the question and answer format. So the book never, never manifested but on Amazon, it's still up there to this day. And at the bottom, it says, people who bought this book also bought. So it's completely algorithm ruled. So that's an easy, easy way. Now, here's another piece of my little secret sauce that I'm sharing with you about the competition section. What I want you to do is you're going to identify five, six, or seven titles, not more than that, that are competitive with your book. And after you put their con, their, their, editorial text, then your editorial text. Now, here's your next step. I want you to turn their glow down and turn yours up. And what I mean by this is that either their marketing department from the publishing house or the author has written the text that's there. And their book is the greatest that's 
ever been written. You want to turn their glow down. So if they're saying, you know, their book is the first book to X, Y, Z. Take that out. You know, their book does blah, 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 but they're not the first book to just do you get the idea of what I'm talking about? Your book is the first book, too. So you want to make sure that in terms of the weight of each book that you're glowing more than they are. And a lot of times they'll be using superlatives, you know, adjectives like just cut them out, cut them out. So that's, you know, part of my secret sauce. Another section, uh, there's going to be the books table of contents. And you're just, you know, not descriptions there, just here's the table of contents. Then there's about promotions. Actually, about promotions comes before the books table of contents. And about promotions, never say in this section, and I mean never say that you're going to do X, Y, and Z once the book comes out. Publishers want to know what you're doing now. And so that's really, really critical. I mean, never say, I'm going to hire a publicist, you know, upon the book's launch. No. Secure the publicist, if you're going to do that, secure it now. And tell them so-and-so is in place to begin the launch campaign on XYZ date. You know, things like that. If you have a budget, put that in there. I have a promotional budget of XYZ. Not mandatory, but, you know, hey, tips the sale in your favor. And this section needs to be numbers driven. Never tell a publisher that you're going to supplement what they're doing for you. They just want to know what you're doing. You know, don't mention the publisher and what they're going to do for you in your promotion section. Just leave that out of the conversation. They want to see your numbers and start with your highest numbers. You know, if your numbers are lower than your launch campaign partners, Put your launch campaign partners at the top and put them in descending financial order. If somebody, let's say a number of people get back to you on your launch campaign and they have less than 5,000 people or maybe they have like 2,500 people or 1,000 people, don't list them as launch campaign partners. Group them all together. So, you know, and then you would just include that as part of your list. And then we add up that total. We, I like to put it at the top. Launch campaign partners reach. And there's the total of all of them. And then there's the breakdown of all the people. So numbers matter. They totally matter. And that's the section, just make it numbers heavy. And engage with your audience because the larger your engagement, the easier it is to get a book deal. So after the promotion section, then the book's table of contents. And then after that, there are chapter summaries. And yes, you need to write three quarters of a page or so for every single chapter of your book. What is that chapter about? What are the takeaways for the for the reader? You know, you can bullet point some of it. And so, again, all of this is in third person. You know, so that's the next part. And then sample chapters. And so a lot of people say, well, can you shop a book just based on a book proposal and sample chapters? Yes, you can. Is it harder to get a book deal? that way. For most people, yes. And it's going to come down to um, different factors uh, that I, I think I would rather go into like a, a private conversation with the person, you know, rather than take up time here to talk about that. But um, I prefer to pitch a book when it's, it's polished, we've edited it, it is ready to go. So I'm pitching the proposal and the manuscript at the first time, right, right then. And now why do I prefer to do that? So we can get a book deal quicker because decisions are not made by one person. They're made by committee. So the first person is the acquisitions editor who I pitch to. And they're going to fall in love with your project. They're going to be looking at that proposal going, oh, wow, this is, this is really solid. They're going to read it. Then it's going to go to their team. And they're going to be looking at your book versus other books that they're also considering for that publishing cycle. So now publishing cycles, depending on the size of the publisher, they might, they might publish four times a year in a certain amount of books, or they might publish twice a year or once a year. It really depends on the size of the publisher. So they're looking at your book and comparing it with other people's books that they're interested in content-wise. And then it's gonna to go to a marketing department and to the pub, what's called the pub board. And so all these different players are gonna weigh in. So the, the people who are the sales executives are going to be calling, account managers are going to be calling Barnes & Noble 
they're going to see, you know, is Barnes and Noble going to pre-order this book? And so there's all these different players that get involved in it. And so that's why I want to get the book out for you as quickly as we can. So I want to give you some timelines. A couple of years ago, and again, this is pre, you know, pre-COVID, I was pitching eight books simultaneously, eight books. And I was pitching them in July. In October, seven of the eight books, it was all nonfiction, seven of the eight books were offered contracts by different publishers. Wow. So there was like a four-month cycle of the books going through different committees to get to that. But it was really interesting, you know, that I pitched them all. They were all ready to go, proposals and manuscripts in July. And then, okay, four-month cycle to get to the yes. The eighth book, an acquisition the editor loved and brought it to her team, but the team felt like the book was too advertorial. It was just promoting the author too much. And, and they said, you know, if the author wants to rewrite, we'll reconsider it. So again, you know, I have very incredibly strong track record of getting people book deals. So I really have a very strong under, understanding as to what they buy. And so once a publisher says, yes, you know, they're interested, the first thing they do is they're gonna present an offer. They'll contact me and they say, yeah, you know, we want this book. And here's the basic royalty structure. And so then I go to the author and say, okay, so-and-so is offering a deal. Let me contact everybody else where I pitched it and tell them we've got a deal on the table. And that makes everybody else hustle. That, that's great. And as soon as if we start getting two players in, then all of a sudden I'm contacting one of the agents to say, can we create a bidding war here? Because bidding wars are fun. We like them. So that's kind of what happens. And once the author says yes to the offer, then a publishing contract is, is, is forthcoming, usually within like two to three weeks. You know, you think you'd get it like the next day. No, it's going to take two to three weeks before you get it. And then there's usually a year to a year and a half before the book's actually going to come out. So it is, it's, it's a longer game to get to a traditional publisher. That being said, nonfiction is a much easier sell than fiction. I currently have three fiction projects, two thrillers and a women's fiction under contract with different agents. We're pitching it right now. But the, the, the business and, and the mind-body-spirit books, the self-help, it's like boom, 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 boom. I mean, I'm just making those connections and it's just happening. It's just really much quicker. A great amount of information. We got to talk more. We go, we've gone way over today, and I'm sitting there oh, going, okay. I'm not taking notes because <laughs> I'm going to transcribe this, and we're going to definitely put something. Folks, if you want to get your book to a, a publisher, don't call me. Call Randy because she knows how to do this better than anybody. I've been like, I don't know. So they can go contact you at Author One Stop. That's author and the number O N E. No, with the letters O N E. Yes. The letters. AuthorOneStop.com, yes. <laughs> AuthorOneStop.com. Go there, and then, um, man, that's, that's great, Randy. I really appreciate your time today. We'll definitely want to chat again, and don't go anywhere. I want to talk to you when the when the stream is over here, too, so stick around. Very um, good. Thank you. You betcha. Randy Pizer, um, book publicist, writer, editor, author, and uh, the person to get you a publishing deal. She's the one to contact. Uh, this is Doug Hurl with the show today. Don't forget to click below and subscribe. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Thank you so much.